0: So to start out this morning, I want to ask everybody a question, and when I ask this question, please don't answer quickly, don't answer with any sort of bravado, and certainly don't answer the way you think you should answer. I mean, we're sitting in church, it's okay, Uh, because if you do that, one, it may mean you're not taking it seriously, the other way, we really want to get uh, honest with this. Um, because, and the reason we do that is because none of, those, none of those things are going to be helpful to help us get into the mindset to understand what's happening in this Bible verse that we're going to read from today. Um, you're going to be missing the point of Daniel chapter 3, right? So here's the question, and again, take it seriously and just think about it for a second. What would actually have to happen to you to deny that you know God, to turn away from Him, even just for like... Smidge. What would have to happen, what would you be willing to do to deny God to live one more day? Or to avoid a a terrible death? Even just for a moment. Like, what's your breaking point? Now, if you're truly being honest about that and you're thinking about it, uh, you likely, it's a difficult question to answer, right? Because you're not physically there. And like uh, whenever, you know, we have a serious conversation like this, there's usually some people like, I totally do or I'd be strong. Other people like, who I don't know. I can think of one or two things or I would really have a hard time, right? And th- what's really great about the Bible, it's great for a lot of reasons, but no matter what you would actually do, whether you stood strong or you turned tails and you whatever, someone in the Bible who did great things for Christianity and advancing the faith did the exact same thing as you would do. Whether you stood strong, whether you were somewhere in the middle or where you couldn't sell out God fast enough to save your skin. Someone, including even the disciples, did one of those things. So you're in good company. It's okay. That's why we said don't answer the way I w- you think you should answer or whatever like that. Be honest. And that's the mindset that I want everybody in as we talk about this today, because this is a serious subject. It's a real scenario that three men found them in, found themselves in, is from Daniel chapter three, and what's particularly difficult about this, not just the situation, but they were given a choice. They got to choose what happened, where they lived, or whether they got burned to death, and what. Would decide whether they lived or died was, now watch this, this is all they had to do. That's it. Took about two seconds, and they would have lived. That's it. Not that bad, not that big, right? But that's the question that they were asked decide for yourself. So let's start with Daniel chapter 3 and that mindset, because really it's helpful to know where they're coming from and how they responded. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, go there. If you don't, no worries. All the verses are going to be on the screen behind my head. So this is what it says starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, he made an image of gold 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, if you are here last Sunday, we talked about Daniel chapter 2, and in that chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar, same dude, had this dream. And he had a dream and it scared him. It was big. He knew it was a big as important. And no one seemed to be able to understand and interpret it for him until this guy Daniel came along, who we have this book named after. Daniel, with God's help, was able to interpret the dream. And he tells him, in this dream, there's a statue and it had a golden head. And the golden head represented King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And the next part, uh, the chest represented the Persians, the waist, the Greeks, the legs of iron, the Romans, the Roman kingdom. And finally, the, 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 the feet represented a future kingdom that hadn't occurred yet. And uh, in this dream, this, this rock came and it smashed the entire statue. Everything turned to dust and blew away in the wind, but this one rock remained. It grew bigger and bigger and it encompassed the whole earth. And the idea behind this uh, dream, this vision, is that God, what God was going to do to the earth is destroy all those kingdoms and rebuild them on this one rock. And we believe that rock represented Jesus Christ. He was remaking the earth, and that was God's plan, right? So King Nebuchadnezzar gets this interpretation. He, can, he understands it. And then he decides to build this golden statue, right? The one that we just read about. He's had time to mull this over, the implications of this uh, prophecy, what's going to happen in the future, he knows he's being told his kingdom is going to be smashed and it's going to go away, and several other kingdoms after that. But he's, what he wants to do is go against that prophecy, try to change the future, lock down his place in history, and really cement his place. He's going to try to put a stop to that. So um, as we read this, it says his people. he had his people make up this huge golden statue. It was about 90 feet high, and it was in the place called uh, Dura, in the Plains of Dura. We don't know the exact location of that, but it was somewhere south of modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. So it's in that general area. That's where Babylon was. And as he it builds the statue, uh, once it's erected, he begins to take concrete steps to cement his place in history, to shore up any dissent. Because any king, if you have dissenters in your kingdom, that's, well, that's cracks. You can't have that. you got to shore that up. So what he's going to do is not unique in its purpose. Many rulers throughout the ages, uh, even some modern governments, they like to mix religion when it suits them for their purposes to maintain control, keep people in line, and eliminate dissent, right? It makes it very hard to do that if it, God is with you or you can be able to say that God's on your side, right? So what he does is he calls all the public officials together, the governors, the judges, the treasurers, anybody of in power, and he brings them before the statue. And the reason he chose these people first is That's where the seat of power is. That's all the influential people. If they do it, if they fall in line, if they toe the line, it's going to be very difficult for all the common people to show any dissent. If they do it, everybody else is going to do it. This is going to be a test of allegiance. All right? And so this is what he does. It's in verses 4 to 6. Then the herald proclaimed loudly, nations, people of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. So again, what he's doing here, he's using worshiping this statue as a test of allegiance. You need to fall in line, you need to do what I tell you, when I tell you, and you're a good citizen. You're okay. If you don't do this, you test my authority, you're going to be burned alive in this furnace. The punishment will be swift, immediate, and horrible. Now, personally, this is my personal opinion, one of the reasons I believe government should be kept separate from religions. Government has done and, do and still do things, bad things when they get their hands on religion because they use it to suit their needs. Now, you as a citizen absolutely 100% should vote your faith. You should also, if you feel God's calling you, run for office. Use your faith. Live out your faith. Absolutely 100%. But you have to remember this no matter what you do. Following Jesus Christ is a choice. It's your choice. It's everybody's choice. Jesus let people walk away from him and choose not to follow him. So my point is governments can get a hold of it and coerce and force people to do things. That is not what Christianity is about. We choose to follow Jesus Christ because if it's anything other than that, it's not faith. It's not faith, right? And again, there have actually been governments who have used the Bible, different Bible verses for their own purposes to do bad things or questionable things. And the verse that gets used the most uh, that I've been able to find is a verse from Romans chapter 13, verse 1. It's used a lot. And as we read this, see if you can kind of picture how this could be used. Romans 13.1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no ex- authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist, that exist have been established by God. Can you kind of see how that could potentially be used? Uh, during World War II, the Nazis used this verse to bring people in line with what they were doing. The southern states used this to justify maintaining slavery. Apartheid Africa used it to maintain segregation. A previous administration in the United States used this verse to justify taking children away from their parents at the border. For the record, this verse and the rest of Romans chapter 3 was written by a man named Paul. And these were instructions he gave to the citizens of Rome to be good citizens, to follow the laws. He even told them specifically to pay their taxes. The point is, Christians should not be violent. We shouldn't be anarchists. We should be known for being patient, kind, loving, forgiving. That verse in the entire chapter was not written to governments to use on their people to get them in line. It was written for Christians. And on this subject, this is very important to pay attention, there are lots of examples in the Old and New Testament of people directly defying the government and their orders. Jesus, during his trial, refused to answer questions, did he not? Jesus publicly disagreed with high priests and Pharisees many times, told them they were wrong. The three wise men directly disobeyed an order from King Herod to return and tell him where they found the baby Jesus. Did they not? Every time the disciples got arrested for preaching about Jesus, many times they were whipped. What did they do the moment they went back out? Taught about Jesus Christ. The Apostle uh, Paul, who wrote what we just read, and the book of Romans got arrested, got arrested multiple times for doing what? Talking about Jesus Christ. Only to do what the minute he got out? Talk about Jesus Christ again. He defied them all the time. In the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives were ordered by Pharaoh to kill all the male Israel, Israelite newborns. They defied that order. They would not do that. In Exodus chapter 2, the parents of Moses disobeyed Pharaoh when they hid him in the reeds to protect him. So the point is, we should obey our government and our elected officials as long as what they're doing is just. But we're not called to follow them when they go against the teachings of Jesus Christ. Governments, just like people, can do bad things, good things, some things in the middle. Sometimes they just need to do things better. The point is, and this is what we're going to learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we follow God, not man. Okay? So let's get back to our story. As the horns, the flutes, the zither, all the other instruments begin to play and play loudly, uh, the people do exactly what Nebuchadnezzar instructed them. They unquestionably bow down. They're worshipped as they're told. They they, they toe the line. And as everyone is doing this, again, bowing down as instructed, some public officials notice not absolutely everybody did this. Not everyone bowed down. There's only three people that didn't bow down. They're named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when it's discovered... These officials run immediately to the king. And in verse 12, this is what they say. But there are some Jews whom you've appointed over affairs. They point out that King Nebuchadnezzar appointed them, appointed them over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So let's look at what they're accused of. First, they're called out as foreigners. They're Jews. They're not like us. They're not from here. These are also the ones, Nebuchadnezzar, that you put in charge of things here in Babylon, and they're ignoring you. But here's the real crime. They're not serving our gods. They did not worship this image that you set up. Notice they haven't been accused of doing a bad job as administrators. They're not lazy. They're not accused of taking bribes. Even though they're foreigners, they're doing as good a job as the natives, if not better. Also, no one cares if they worship their god alongside the Babylonian gods. They simply won't worship this gold image. That's what they won't do. Now, it's also because of the way that this was reported to the king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego likely never made a big deal of any of this. When King Nebuchadnezzar made this decree, you have to bow down or be burned, they didn't write a letter to the king you know, stating their reasons for not. They didn't start picketing outside his residence. We're not doing this. They likely, off to the side, When everybody else did it, they just didn't do anything. It was quiet. They didn't lodge a complaint. And because it had to be reported to the king, it's likely most people never even saw it, never even knew it happened. But this is what happens next. It's about to get very serious for them. Verses 13 to 15. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar, he summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you did not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Problem solved, right? But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? So this is a very tense situation. King Nebuchadnezzar is obviously a tyrant, but we got to give him a little credit. He does two things to make sure these three men get a fair shake. Number one, he asks them if it's true what he heard. Listen, I was told y'all didn't bow down. I heard that. Is that true? Tell me. What did you do? Next, he gives them, regardless of their answer, a second chance. Listen, maybe y'all didn't get it. I get it. You're natives. Maybe you didn't understand. Now this is it. Turns to all the musicians, gets the band ready like a conductor. Ready? Get your horns up. When you hear the and then he turns to them one last time. He says, Listen, if there's any question now, this is it. When they play, do one of these and we're good. Don't, and you're gonna be burned alive in that furnace. Can't get more serious. And like I stated when he started this teaching. This is the moment of truth. This is their choice. They get to choose whether they die in the next 10 minutes or whether they live. Now, if we're being honest, you would think at some point one of them is going to go like this. <laughs> Cross their fingers. Forgive me. Boom. I'm fine. I get to live. Now I get to spend the rest of my life explaining to God why I caved for that And can you blame them if they would have done that? No. You also have to keep in mind, they they weren't in prison before this. They were high up in the Babylonian government. They were public officials. They were very wealthy. They were doing well. They're not hurting. But to truly get to Nebuchadnezzar's point, what's really going on here, we just have to go back to his final statement. It's actually a question. He says, then what God, what God is going to be able to rescue you from my hand? The statement recognize, this statement from a king, he's a tyrant, he recognizes no God but himself. That's really what this is. Sure, there were Babylonian gods, but he was not concerned about them. He probably didn't truly believe in them. He was one of those, who used religion as long as it served him up to that point. He was an opportunist. That's why he asked them so boldly, what God? What God do you think can save you from my hand? And in this statement, it also hints, it hints at his intent, and it's very similar to the first commandment, the Ten Commandments, right? And the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And this is kind of what Nebuchadnezzar is hinting at. He's putting him on a spot. He's saying, I'm the one. I'm a god. You're not allowed any gods before me. So do you have any other gods? You're going to recognize me. And as we go on, I want to think about this for a second. I want us to think about uh, this because how each of you would answer that question, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, dictates a huge amount. So I want to look at the Ten Commandments real quick. Look at the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. How you answer that is going to dictate how you see the rest of the nine commandments. If you truly only have one God and one God alone, those commandments are going to be seen as a blessing. They're really going to direct your lives. There's really no question, right? It's kind of straight and narrow. But if you have other gods, if you're one of those people who kind of pick and choose when you follow God and when you don't, well, then the others, they're just kind of opportunities or there's going to be loopholes, right? Jesus, one of the things that he he debated, uh, got in a lot of trouble with when he debated the high priest and the Pharisees was about murder and adultery. The Pharisees and the high priest said, well, if you act, it's only murder if you actually do it. It's only adultery if you actually do it. Doing it in your heart or thinking about it is not. And Jesus is like, whoa, pump the brakes. Hating someone in your heart is exactly the same as murdering them. Having impure thoughts, wishing it in your heart is the same thing as actually doing it. Because what Jesus is doing is talking about the intent of the law. If you have one God, that's how you're going to see things. If you have multiple gods, or you're gonna just pick and choose, well, then you got loopholes. I didn't actually do anything, technically. You see how that, that's different. So the first commandment, how you respond, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, really show a lot. It's important. So standing before King Nebuchadnezzar with this life. Or death predicament. Remember, they alone choose. They get to decide. They give their answer, and it is a doozy. Verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to him King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now they say that because it's obvious. They didn't bow down. They're not hiding it. We didn't do it. There's nothing else to say about it. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, The God we serve, he's able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your your majesty's hand. Look at verse 18, this is the key. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now there's some good Bible verses uh, in the Bible, but this is one of those that just carry, it's just, it's immense what they just said. And there's two words in particular that show the gravity of it and the, their level of faith and commitment. And the first, the word is if. If we're thrown into that furnace, our God is able to save us. They didn't say he will save us, but he's able to. They know God's ability, but they do not dictate his purpose, or what he's actually going to do. They don't dictate his will. God might not save them. And they understand that. They're going to certainly pray and ask him for help. Again, it's his will, not theirs. But you have to look at what they said. Even if he does not and we burn alive, we will never worship the image of gold you set up. He is our God. They not only refused to deny their God, but they told Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks of himself a God, they told him to his face, you have no power over us and our God. You have no authority over us and our God. Obviously, it goes well. Nebuchadnezzar said, that's fine. You guys are free to go. (laughs) No, that's not what happened. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, he freaks out. He has the furnace heated up seven times hotter. He has some of his strongest soldiers come in, and they tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and immediately they run, and they go throw them into the furnace. And the furnace is supposedly so hot, the men who throw them in there, they end up dying of their injuries. So now the deed is done. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in the furnace. It's done. They're charcoal, essentially. Issue solved. The traitors who refuse to bow down and recognize Nebuchadnezzar as absolute king are done. At least that's what everybody thinks. Now this is also one of those stories I want to throw out there. I wish, I wish somebody like Steven Spielberg would remake this and let us see this. Because all this would be awesome, but this is the key point, and a really good director would do this well. Nebuchadnezzar's sitting on his throne, having his victory cup of coffee, right? Chilling. And at some point, we don't know why, he decides to look over at the furnace. He's far enough away, but he can see in there. And as he's doing that, sipping his coffee, there's three people walking around in there. And then pff, spits it out, there's a fourth. There's a fourth. Let's read verse 24 and 25 because exactly what he said because this is beautiful. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet, put his coffee down, right? In amazement, asked his advisors, wait a second, weren't there three people we threw in there? Now there's four. And all the, religious, all the people there said, yes, of course, certainly there were three. He said, look, I see four men walking around there, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There's four. How did the fourth person get in there? They're no longer tied up. They're unharmed. The, the, the fire, he'd had no effect on him. And the fourth person, where did he come from? How did he get in there? Now, notice Nebuchadnezzar says the fourth person looked like a son of the gods. Now, some Bible translations actually say the son of God, and that is not a t- correct translation. That's not what he said. He said a son of the gods. Because it, from his standpoint, it could have been an angel. He didn't know. It was someone divine. God above had intervened. Somehow something was going on there. He couldn't explain it. Now, for the record, it could absolutely have been Jesus Christ. It could have been an angel. The point is, we just know his words, and this was something crazy, incredible, impressive going on. But this is God the Father intervening. This is God intervening in our world, saving these three men. He's answering their prayer. He's declaring that he is real, and Nebuchadnezzar has no power here. So Nebuchadnezzar runs over to the furnace, gets as close as he can. He yells into the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the God most high, come out, come out of there. So the three men, they just walk right out. Not a singed hair, they're burn, their clothes aren't burned. The text tells us they didn't even smell like fire or smoke. Everyone, anyone ever sit around a campfire for a while? You can totally smell it later. They did not smell like fire. And that's one of the things I love. There's details in some of these stories that tell me that it it, it actually happened because someone was like, they don't even smell like smoke. What the heck? At least they should smell like smoke. They didn't smell like all. All the government officials were there. They could not comprehend how this happened. So then King Nebuchadnezzar, always one, never having the ability to just be quiet for a few minutes, makes this huge declaration. Verses 28 to 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way then he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, on the surface, this seems good, but perhaps I'm going to argue Nebuchadnezzar is really not really believing in God. He just saw something incredible, and he's going to use this for his own benefit as well. And for all his admission, let's be honest, he's the one that caused this whole problem in the beginning. He hasn't taken one ounce of responsibility for causing it, and... Two minutes ago, he said, listen, if you don't bow down to the statue I made, you're going to be burned alive. Now, the God that saved these people, if you say anything against that God, I'm going to have you cut to pieces. I can only imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going, oh, Stop with all the killing. So he's going from one extreme to the other, completely missing the point of what just happened. What's actually going on is God is intervening in this world to let them know that he is real. He wants to have a relationship with He wants people to know him and follow him. That's what this is about. So the real question is, now this is where it comes to us, what should we learn from this story? Because here's what I want you to do. Anytime you read a story, anything that kind of jumps out at you and that's cool and there's some good stuff in there, ask yourself, why is this in there? Why did somebody take the time, 2,000, 3,000, 3,500 take the time years ago to write this down? Why did somebody put their life at risk? to write this down. What do I need to know? What do I should learn from this? And I think we should do is go back to the original question that we started out this uh, teaching with, which is, what is your breaking point? What would have to happen for you to go, and save myself, save yourself? What if it was your life? Now, thankfully, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, what they went through, none of us will likely ever have to go through anything similar. But we need to understand they had a choice and we have a choice. Like we said all through this today, it's a choice to follow Jesus Christ. You shouldn't be coerced. You shouldn't feel like you have to. You choose. When things are going well, you choose. When things are going somewhere in the middle, eh, it's okay. You choose. When things are going awful, you have no hope Don't know what you're supposed to do. Your world's falling apart. It's a choice then too. And that's what this comes down to. What do you choose? Because it's what you hang on to, what you reach out for in dark times. It shows where your head and where your heart is at. Because our God, I'm going to say from this story, our God is a God that you can trust. Our God is a God who is there. He wants you to turn to him in times of need. But also from this story, we need to know that following Jesus Christ is not like winning a lottery ticket where you suddenly have a rich uncle and you never have to work again. Nothing bad ever happens. That is not true. Bad stuff happens to Christians, even when you believe. God exists whether you're going up here or you're down here. God exists. He is there. He is worthy of our worship and praise regardless. That's what we're saying. So this brings us to our big point for today. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are here. This church is here to declare that God is real. He is real. That's what they are saying. That's what we say. But the difference, this is where it's cool, the difference between us and them can't be more different. They chose, they, ha- they could only say that God was real. They could not dictate his will. They didn't know what he was going to do. For us, it's different. This is awesome. Because of Jesus Christ, we can say God Israel and it's his will that all people come to know Jesus Christ. That's what this is about, right? That's our purpose as Christians. God is present. He is there for us through thick and thin. And he wants all people to know Jesus Christ. So it started in the Old Testament, all the stories, everything happening, completes itself with Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the message that saves. So now as we finish this teaching, And as we prepare to share communion together, let's finish this with a prayer. Let's reach out to our God, okay? Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, we reach out to you today with our thanks for sending your son to save us. We thank you for all the lessons in the Bible. We thank you for all the experiences, all the people, everything they went through so that we could learn from them and grow in our faith. Father, I ask you to be with each person here. Increase all of our faith. Help us to remain strong at all times, to trust in you no matter what. And in thinking of the next generation, the people who don't know you, may those people, may they see our faith and our trust in you even in bad times, and may they be drawn to you. May they learn from us that you are real, you can be trusted and worthy of thanks and praise. Father, it's our heart's desire that all people come to know you and the saving grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. And all this we ask in his name. Amen.